I'm Kendra Tombolato, here with Mei Zhang, and this is the China Travel Podcast by Wild China Travel. Each week, we'll be heading to a new place in China to share our top local tips and tricks, highlighting our favorite food, hotels, and experiences, as well as sharing resources. If you're joining or catching up on past episodes, we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast. And lastly, if you're interested in traveling China with us or attending any of our other virtual events, please visit our website at wildchina.com. For this episode, we head to the San Xingdui Archaeological Site in Sichuan Province with Harvard's Anthropology Department Professor of Archaeology, Rowan Flad, who shares insights on the importance of the San Xingdui findings, an overview on archaeological sites across China within the context of Chinese history, and of course, recommendations for archaeological sites in China open to visitors. Hi, welcome back to the China Travel Podcast. My name is Zhang Mei, and every week we venture to a different destination in China with a special guest. And when we say a destination, it can really be a village, a town, or sometimes simply a way of life. And today it's going to be one site. We're heading to San Xingdui, an archaeological site in Sichuan, not far from the city of Chengdu. And our guest, I'm honored to announce, is Dr. Rowan Flad, a professor of archaeology at Harvard. And his research focuses on the emergence and development of complex society during the late Neolithic period and the Bronze Age in China. He has conducted excavations and research in Sichuan, and I believe he is now looking towards southern Gansu, which is northern Sichuan. But for today's episode, we are going to stay and zoom in on this specific site in Sichuan. So, Rowan, welcome. It's wonderful to have you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you very much for having me. It's nice to be here. So, I'd love to kick things off by just getting to know you a little bit of your personal journey. How how did you get interested in this ancient time archaeology in China? Yeah, so I got interested in archaeology in China through archaeology when I was a student. Actually, when I was a kid, like many kids, perhaps in the United States and maybe around the world, I was interested in archaeology through exposure in movies and books and so forth. So I went into college being interested in understanding the ancient world in various places. I took coursework on archaeology. But not with a focus on China at the time,、mm. and I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to do some excavation work in Europe. I went to Spain and excavated in a Paleolithic cave site dating to about twenty-five thousand years ago、wow. uh, in northern Spain, which was really、uh, fun and interesting. And I also got a chance right after I graduated from college to go to Turkey and work on a site there that was a village、uh, site turning into a kind of small city. And so it was through those experiences that I really got interested in archaeology and the sorts of questions that archaeologists try to ask and answer about how societies in the past were organized and how we can learn about them through the the garbage left behind, essentially.、Mm-hmm. And what you learn as as an archaeologist is how important the material world around us is for people、mm-hmm. in the present and also in the past. And one of the wonderful things about archaeology is that we can explore. Configurations of society that don't exist anymore in any context, and、hmm. so we get a better sense of the full diversity of the human experience than we can 
through any sort of experiences today. So it's another form of travel. I mean, you, you, this blog is about traveling. And mm. you tra we're time travelers to some extent, going back and trying to understand the way societies are organized. So that I got interested in archaeology first. Yeah. And in, in Chinese archaeology, mainly because there are big questions that archaeologists try to ask and answer that relate to how, as you mentioned, complex societies. This is something that I, I work on. Understanding how, in, the, in kind of the simplest terms, all of humans on the planet went from living in small bands of groups of mostly families and extended families to living in giant cities in which most of humanity resides. How that kind of big sweep of history occurred and what the major thresholds of transition were in the, in the human past. In order to, do, to get a sense of that big transition for humans as a whole, archaeologists often look at those places where we see the emergence of cities, the emergence of other signs of complexity happening, mm -hmm. particularly early. And China is one of those places where it has a very important role to play in the grand sweep of human history, understanding the kind of details of the emergence of complex society and civilization in East Asia. So that was my entry point, was like right. trying to get more familiar with how China fit into these comparative conversations and the more I learned about China and the past in China, the more interested I, I became. And then I was able to go to China to start doing concerted research and participate in archaeological work. And, you know, that was the, the, yeah. the snowballing, I guess. Sounds, yeah. sounds very interesting. It's almost like I think of you as the Sherlock Holmes through history. <laughs> Instead of solving crimes, you were sort of looking at these clues and pieces of piecing them together to figure out the, the society relationship. <laughs> and, you know, whether they have doctors, whether they, you know, how do they have babies? How do they rule? <laughs> that actually is, is very interesting. That takes me to this, this specific site, right? Sanxingdui. A lot of people who are interested in China have probably never heard of it. Mm. And what is that telling us? Let's zoom in with some with one specific item. Mm. I saw it online, this uh, Chinese TV series called National Treasure, and there was this <laughs> pop song singer wearing a bronze mask. And I just initially I thought it was Star Wars, and then I connected the, dot, the dots. That was from <laughs> this year's excavation, right? Could you mm -hmm. describe the mask for us and tell us why? Why it's so significant? Why is the Sanxingdui excavation deserving so much attention? Yeah, that mask is really fascinating. And it's and in some ways it's unique, in other ways it's not at this particular site. So it is a gold foil mask. It's a thin layer of gold that in this particular example of the gold mask that I think you're referring to, because it's become a meme on, online with people making different types yeah. of videos where they incorporate this mask in different ways. It is um, the size of a human, uh, lower part of a human head, almost like the opposite of the Phantom of the Opera mask, in a sense. Yeah. So it's, it covers part of a person's body in its, in its current form. Now, it's a fragment. It's a broken piece. So the original form would have been a complete mask of a human-style figure. It is not exactly realistic face-wise. And that's really an interesting comment, a, a feature of it, because... At Sanxingdui, there were a number of discoveries made in 1986 that allow us to understand a fair amount about this mask, even though it's a very new find. In 1986, mm. there were these 
there were two pits discovered at this site, which is an archaeological location near the city of Guanghan, not far, as you mentioned, from Chengdu, so to the northeast of Chengdu City. It's just in Sichuan. One- one hour, right? About it's like, one hour away yeah, now, um, depending on traffic. Yes, that's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, um, but uh, it's and it's right outside the city of Guanghan, and it is a. Uh, if you visit the site, what you will experience is the site has been turned into an archaeological park. So there are mm-hmm. a couple of museums there that display many of the objects that were excavated in 1986 during these this this first discovery of. Things like this gold mass. Right. The site has actually been known since the 1920s, and it was one of the first places in Sichuan where archaeologists did work. Okay. So there was a little bit of understanding that something interesting was there for a long time, but it was in 1986 because some brick workers were digging for clay in the side of a hill that they discovered these these two pits, uh, which are called K1 and K2. K right. meaning Kung. Kung. So, Kung right. is, a, is a term that's often used to describe different types of pits in archaeological contexts. We have things called Kung, which are like, at, they, we translate that as ash pits or trash pits, essentially. Uh-huh. Uh, but the Kung is a very generic term for pit. And so these are K1, Kung being K, and K2. And in those pits, there were dozens of elephant tusks. There were many bronze objects, including a large number of human heads made out of bronze that were hollow, but they were in the form of a human head. Mm-hmm. And they would have been probably placed on top of a wooden post in antiquity at the time that they were used. Maybe that post might have even been clothed in various types of textiles. And we mm-hmm. think that because there's one object from these two initial pits that were found in '86. That is a full-sized human, entirely made out of bronze, with a head that is very similar to the heads that were found that didn't have bodies. But in this particular case, there's a full-sized human with a full body of bronze, and that body is elaborately decorated with layers of textiles. So there are an, a number of these heads had gold foil on them. So you had a bronze head with then a layer of gold applied to it to make it Mm. that much more amazing to look at, essentially shiny and and impressive. Let let me just understand and understand you. This body you were referring to is a real human body or a... No, so it's a sculpture. It's a bronze sculpture. It's actually quite large. It's two meters tall, which is the same height as me. So I I actually have an image of it on the door (laughs) to my office. (laughs) <laughs> of the same of the same figure, and um, it's really amazing piece. And then, and so th- there's this one very unique full sized human, and then a bunch of heads that have a same, similar style, although different types of hairstyles, also rendered in bronze. Uh-huh. And and then so in addition to those, there are a number of big bronze masks, larger than life size, that are uh, much more kind of fantastic looking. They have large noses, big ears, sometimes have protruding eyes that stick Mm, out from them. And the mask that you're referring to, this gold mask, is kind of more in the style of those, in the sense that it is a bit more stylistic as a human face, but more the size of a, a, a human head. So there's so what we see now, so this is from a num- one of a number of new pits that have just been reported this year. So in 1986, right. there were two pits. And then this year, it was announced that there are six more pits. 
right in the same location, immediately adjacent to the two pits that were discovered in the 80s that are also filled with all sorts of interesting stuff. And only some of that has been reported so far, and I haven't been able to visit since the discoveries were made. But that mask is a, a, a part of a bigger collection of materials. And this actually points out to one of the really important things about archaeology as a whole. I mean, there's some fantastic objects from ancient the ancient world that really are evocative in many ways, like the gold mask and like other things in China that are of this variety are, are large bronze vessels that were used in rituals in the past or jade objects. And while those objects in and of themselves can be really quite fascinating, it's actually when we know more about where they were they're come from and they are in the context in which they were deposited in, in, in the past, in the ancient times, that we learn a whole lot more about them. Mm-hmm. So one of the most important things about this mask is actually that it's not just a mask that we can't put into its context, but rather that we know that it came from one of these pits and it was disposed of with a whole bunch of other things. And the connections between those things tell us stories that we wouldn't really be able to tell if we just had the mask by itself, you know, sitting on a shelf. Right. So, so from your, with your eyes of looking for a complex society and with this early stage of excavation, what's the speculation? Is this a, a imperial palace or is this whole area a village or a dump site, a religious yeah. site? What is it? That's a great question. And it's, again, because we have these objects collected together that we can say a a, a number of things about what was happening at Sanxingdui and also more broadly in the Sichuan region. So Mm -hmm. what we think of Sanxingdui is that it was a major center of a, probably what we might think of as a small state, but certainly a, a complex society that was integrating communities across the Sichuan region where there was a section of the community that probably had people who were in leadership roles and played an important political role in integrating people across the larger region and in bringing things together, resources from various areas that allowed for an increasing focus on specialized activities. And there are several reasons why we can say that those sorts of things. So at Sanxingdui, additional work beyond the area of these pits has shown Mm -hmm. one part of the site that has large building structures, foundations of the same time period of large building structures that we might speculate were associated with an elite class in the society. The Mm. pits themselves were probably the result of ritual activities that were part of the way in which the community was brought together periodically in Mm -hmm. episodes of celebration and also destruction. So it looks like that there were these ritualized occasions on which things that were brought together from probably quite a large region were then destroyed and deposited intentionally as a maybe a, a way to kind of renew the social connections among people. And this was done at a rather large scale. And one of the really fascinating things about Sanxingdui is it's not the only site where we have similar remains, although it's quite unique in some ways. Mm-hmm. But there's a, a location in the city of Chengdu called Jinsha, which has a great museum associated with it as well. So people who are traveling to Sichuan to perhaps go to see Sanxingdui, there's a lot of other really amazing things to see. And one place I would recommend is this is the museum at the Jinsha site. 
which mm. was discovered exactly 20 years ago. They're having a celebration of that, an academic conference about that just this coming week on oh, okay. the 20-year anniversary of the discovery of a material at Jinsha. And there, there were also gold objects found, including a very small gold mask that's not all that dissimilar to the one that we were, we were talking about a minute, a minute ago, and other gold objects, including a gold disc that is now the symbol of cultural heritage in China, uh, was found at this location called Jinsha in 2001. And the reason I bring Jinsha up is because Jinsha post-states Sanxingdui, so it's a couple hundred years later than these pits at Sanxingdui. The Sanxingdui pits date to about 3,200 years ago, give or take. Early. It actually has a different specific chronology with it, but uh-huh. a little bit more than 3,000 years ago is when these uh, the pits at Sanxingdui date. And the uh, mm-hmm. material from Jinsha dates to a little less than 3,000 years ago. So there's a couple hundred okay. years of difference between these two locations. And whereas at Sanxingdui, the community there seems to have had a strong central power to it, perhaps reflected in these large occasions of ritual destruction. At mm-hmm. Jinsha, they were still, people who were living there a couple hundred years later were still engaging in sort of ritual abandonment and sacrifice of objects, but at a smaller scale, and also perhaps in ways that indicate that maybe there wasn't as much a control over, centralized control over resource acquisition, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. So at, in both sites, we have Elephant tusks, lots, lots of elephant tusks that have been found. Which is amazing. Which yeah. is really amazing. I mean, this year, of course, we had all those wandering elephants from Yunnan coming up into <laughs> Sichuan, right? And so yes. the, the elephants are, are not um, completely foreign even today to the, this general part of Asia, but they would have been more ubiquitous at the time of Sanxingdui, and they probably lived uh, across the, the Chengdu Plain. But one of the interesting things about Asian elephants is that only the male Asian elephants have tusks. And mm-hmm. male Asian elephants are territorial. In one pit at Sanxingdui from the 1980s, there were something like 86 tusks, which represent wow. at least 40-something elephants and probably more. And so these tusks were gathered from a pretty large region or over a fairly long period of time in order to have all these in one location, right? And they were all destroyed at the same time. At, at Jinsha, on the other hand, you do also have elephant tusks that were deposited, one one fairly large deposit. But in many cases, they were just individual tusks or even cut up tusks, parts of tusks. Hmm. So perhaps the elephants were much less common by that point in time. Perhaps the ivory was valued more highly. Perhaps they just didn't have this tribute coming in to that location Hmm. uh, at this point in time. And so in in Sichuan in general, we, we seem to see a a shift in power from more than 3,000 years ago till after 3,000 years ago, with the center being near Guanghan at Sanxingdui for a period mm-hmm. of time, and then shifting to Chengdu, the Chengdu area, where it more or less remained until the present day in slightly different parts of the Chengdu city area. But mm-hmm. we know all of these things because of discoveries like those that were made at Sanxingdui in these pits. Mm-hmm. Since you were referring to these, you know, 3,000 years, these timelines of Chinese history, maybe it'll be helpful to give our audience a little bit sort of uh, archaeology of Chinese history 101. Uh-huh. Everyone knows about the 1978 cover 
photo of mm-hmm. National Geographic. That's the Terracotta Warriors, which I was actually dis- discovered four years prior to that, right? Mm-hmm. So that is what everyone goes to China for. How, how are the time periods and uh, difference and also significance or connections between the Terracotta Warriors versus San Xindui? Yeah, that's a great question. So to put this into a fairly simple timeline. So the Terracotta Warriors date to about 2,000 years ago. So uh, they come from a little bit more than 2,000 years ago. They're associated right. with the first emperor of Qin, a right. person we call Qin Shi Huangdi, who was a, a king of a state called Qin that was situated in the area of modern uh, Shanxi with a capital near the modern city of Xi'an. And during his lifetime, he led his state to the conquest of other states who were had been competing for power in North and, and, and even South China for hundreds of years at that point, with various different states becoming more uh, powerful and less powerful over time. This is a period we call the Warring States period in Chinese history. Right. And it, it ends with the first emperor of Qin and the Qin state conquering the rest of these states. And actually, most quite importantly, one of the ways in which they consolidated power in order to provide to uh, have enough resources to conquer the rest of China was by first conquering Sichuan. And so the Qin state, which is, again, situated north of the Qinling Mountains, which are north of the Sichuan Basin, were able to enter into the Sichuan Basin with a military force, conquer the, the communities that lived there, which are usually referred to in textual sources as being associated with a state called Shu, which we don't we don't know as much about from their own voice because there wasn't um, there weren't texts that were written by the Shu state, but there were right. records about the Shu state written by other people later on. And so the Qin come into Sichuan, they conquer the community, the, the societies that are there, the, the people that are there, and then uh, Sichuan is a very productive part of China as a whole, even today. So it's an area where the agricultural productivity is quite high, and the Qin were able to use it as essentially a breadbasket to support the expansion of their power. So then when Qin Shi Huangdi conquered the rest of China, he's very famous for having unified a number of things like the writing system and the way in which roads were constructed and the monetary system. He's also famous, infamous for having killed scholars and burned books and tried to uh, homogenize the philosophy that was being used to structure politics of the time. And then one of the things that he's now perhaps most famous for is the construction of his tomb. So he commissioned the creation of a massive tumulus, which is uh, still very large and sits outside of the city of Xi'an to the east of Xi'an. And in the construction of that, there was also the deposition of large pits filled with different sorts of things, the most famous of which is the, uh, two, the the pit filled with terracotta soldiers who yeah. are situated in a, a large rectangular pit on the eastern side of this tumulus, facing outward, essentially protecting it in the afterlife and protecting him in the afterlife. So the discovery, there's so it's such an amazing place to see and visit because of the scale and the magnitude of not just the tumulus, but also the effort that went into creating all of these objects for the deposition in a burial, in in someone's Mm. burial. And uh, they also are a particularly good reflection of 
the power and centralization of the state that really became so important at this time of the first emperor and then kind of created a standard for the next 2,000 years of history, for the imperial cycle from the Qin through the Han. So the Qin didn't last very long. Mm -hmm. uh, after uh, Qin Shi Huangdi passed away, his son took over. His son wasn't a very good leader. His son lost the power. And then the, the, a family called the Liu family established the Han dynasty. And yeah. that lasted for 400 years with a slight break in the middle. And during that 400 years, they were building institutions that were very much based on those that had been started by Qin Shi Huangdi. So the Qin set the standard for right. the Han that followed. And then the Han, with this, uh, its long-lasting power, also based in the same part of China, so in what we call the central plains of the Wei River Valley and the lower Yellow River Valley of North China. Right. The Han created the, was the standard against which all subsequent dynasties in China in some ways are compared. So we have these 2,000 years of imperial history that are started with the Qin. Right. And archaeologically, what that means is that this discovery of the terracotta soldiers outside of the first emperor's tomb are a symbol of this centralized uh, state that existed in North China and this rather straightforward unilinear history of Chinese society. So yeah. it, it, traditionally, what has been thought to be the the story of Chinese history is a story of empires and is a story um, even in the pre-Qin period. So before Qin Shi Huangdi, it is a story that is rooted in the what are called the three dynasties of the pre-unification era: the Xia, right. Shang, and Zhou. Mm -hmm. Also, um, states that are situated in North China in the, the Central Plains area, more in the Henan region to east of Shanxi. And so for many generations and up through the 20th century and even to the 21st century to some degree, the story of Chinese past has primarily emphasized the story of the Central Plains, the story of dynasties rising and falling according to this historical narrative. Sanxingdui mm -hmm. and Jinsha actually throw a wrench into that. They're not the only places. That do. I mean, there's a lot of really interesting archaeological sites that have been found across China that, that show there were very interesting things going on, very uh, important developments that don't fit into the Chinese histories. So yeah. Sanxingdui is contemporary with the Shang of this three dynasties uh, sequence in North China. But they're not uh, discussed in a, a text from the Shang dynasty that we have. Sanxingdui wasn't really expected or known until the discovery of these pits to have mm. been an important place. And so the, the 1986 discoveries forced archaeologists and historians to recognize more explicitly that there were developments that were occurring in different parts of China that were not treated sufficiently in the textual records of the past. Mm -hmm. And the additional discoveries there kind of add to this. And one of the most interesting manifestations of that is whereas in 1978, there may be a picture on a magazine showing the terracotta soldiers that is representative of China's past, right? Right. And it ties our understanding of China's past to this narrative of the three dynasties and the empires. Yeah. Now, the symbol of cultural heritage, as I mentioned before, is this gold disc from Jinsha which is not 
a symbol that connects to the three dynasties or the imperial sequence, the, the sequence of empires. It is a symbol that points to a different component of this yeah. multifaceted past of China. You know, I, I'm I'm from Yunnan. I'm not sure if you I told you. Is I always felt like you know the whole Chinese history is all on Yellow River and everyone's bread eating and we grew up eating rice. This, this is the whole sort of Chengdu is the rice bowl of China. So this discovery of Sanxin feels like vindicated. You know? Right. <laughs> exactly. um, but it's a more balanced view of, of China's past. Right? And talking about sort of this discovery has forced archaeologists to look at Chinese history differently. I want to bring it to the world stage, uh, referring to your recent article in the Washington Post. It's called It's Golden Age for Chinese Archaeology and the West is Ignoring It, right? You discussed the differences between China, Egypt's archaeological findings and how they are received in the West. Here, I'm going to quote you. Egypt's appearance in the Christian Bible allowed ancient Egypt to be appropriated and incorporated into European heritage and therefore into the story of American identity. So we treat high-profile finds in Egyptian archaeology as a threat to the story of us, while we see Chinese archaeology as re- unrelated to American civilization. But that view was mistaken. Tell us more. Yeah, so this actually relates to what I was just talking about in relation to China specifically in, in a certain way, which is um, the, the, the commentary in the Washington Post op-ed was really a particularly related to an, a reflection on American media. Right. Um, Correct. And that has to do with my being asked, actually, by a reporter when we were uh, when the Sanxin finds were first announced, why this discovery wasn't being treated more or treated at all, essentially, in American media. And, and I thought about it. And what you just read is part of my answer to that. And I think it's an important thing for us to wrestle with, because as an American who was born and raised in the United States, we often hear in the rhetoric about the the origin story of our country as a modern nation state, this reflection on it being a melting pot, being a a country of immigrants, a location that is welcoming to and has to come to terms with diversity within the society that we live in. And yet, it is still the case that so much of what we learn and teach in schools and so much of our kind of knee-jerk reflection on what the past of America is references back to European societies, references the Mediterranean world in various ways. And if we are uh, truly to take advantage of, highlight, and recognize the diversity of origins from which we as a nation come, we should be more aware of and intentional about thinking about the significance of archaeological historical finds, about national origins and uh, cultural developments in all parts of the world, not just mm. in, in in Europe. Now, the op-ed was not by any means to try to diminish the significance of what was found in Egypt that I was reporting on, but rather to think about how the biases or uh, predispositions that we might see in the media reflect something that we have to work to we have to work on 
And so in the case of the, of the Chinese national identity reflected in the symbols of cultural heritage that I was just talking about, mm-hmm. that similarly relates to the way in which the People's Republic of China as a political entity, as a nation state in the modern world, also has to reflect on and wrestle with both in official ways like the establishing of symbols, but also in terms of everyday conversation, the relationship of the modern state to the diversity of pasts that exist within the borders of that nation state. And so the connection between the dynastic cycle, uh, which has been this thread throughout Chinese history that's often referred to, and the things that are not included in that, but nevertheless are archaeologically demonstrated to be within the borders of China, is a tension that is is not entirely unrelated to what we in the United States have to also think about in terms of the contemporary world. Mm, yeah, I feel like I've heard a similar sentiment um, from other scholars researching on the Silk Road versus the the, the T-Horse Road mm. that stretches from Yunnan to Tibet. And also there was a, the Silk Road leads directly to Rome <laughs> because Marco Polo and all that, right? And the T-Horse Road sort of somehow meanders into the Tibetan plateaus and dissipated into a highland, and there was uh, also an awakening that people are thinking, what is the significance of the trade and connections, exchange of culture along different paths? Very interesting. I, I could use the next hour to talk about this, but we have to come <laughs> back to, uh, to San Xingdui. Now, th- this San Xingdui in the West, it, your article was one of the major voices on this discovery that I've read. But in fact, in Chinese readings, my goodness, this this discovery has like lit the country on fire. In fact, I like shone spotlight on archaeology as I've never seen before. Right? It's it's sort of um, there was an article in on this website called Six Tone. It's called Public Archaeology. Like Sanjin Dui excavation was uh, live streamed across social media, and uh, everyone was talking about it. And merchandise being created. There were amateur <laughs> archaeologists coming into being. Sort of the the craze towards archaeology is something I've never seen before. What are your thoughts there? Is this is this a normal thing that you've seen in Egypt or in other parts of the world, or is this what does this say about China? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think it it is something that does happen in other parts of the world at moments in time where major discoveries are made and that piques the interest in a particular community or in a, in a country about certain things. I mean, like many things these days, the scale of what happens in China is perhaps unparalleled in, <laughs> um, in, in relation to other similar phenomena that have, may have happened in the past or in other places. And that's exacerbated and enhanced by the nature of social media and the speed with which communication and information travels these days yeah. and how inter- interconnected everybody is. And so there may be certain aspects of uh, this incidence that of, of public archaeology and outreach that are unparalleled in certain ways. And yet I do think that it is an example that's not unique in showing how the certain types of discoveries of past objects can become really meaningful for a large population or even a small population because they um, 
cre- it creates an opportunity for reflection on one's past, on one's origins, on one's connections to each other and people that one can't necessarily interact with from uh, the past. And so that is one of the reasons why public archaeology and public outreach is so important to not only make those connections, but also to uh, show how the resources of cultural heritage are something that we need to protect and preserve and uh, have the opportunity for future generations to interact with. So one of the things that archaeologists around the world are constantly coming to terms with is the unceasing threat to archaeological materials and historical materials by all sorts of things, by development, by climate change, by robbery and looting and theft, by uh, any sorts of destructive activities that might remove things from the context in which they were placed. Which isn't to say that we should never build another building again and that there can't be progress and development and so forth, but that the more we are able to have deliberative procedures that allow us to identify those things that are meaningful for people and collect as much possible information about them uh, before they are lost to history, the the better it is for our, our understandings of each other and our understandings of ourselves and where we come from. Yeah. No, I absolutely agree. I'm actually delighted to see the sort of public involvement for the first time. This is not sort of cardened into this research office mm-hmm. in the in the back of the museum, but really involving the public in. So it creates this dialogue. Okay. Now, since we are still talking about travel, I'm going to steer the conversation to get some tips from the experts. You've been there I don't know how many times, months, right, in Sichuan from your various studies. What is the best way to visit Sanjindu? Is it going to Chengdu, spend three days or a week there? What would you recommend? Or if they can't go there, are there other places, other museums around China where they could get a glimpse of what Sanjindu is about? Yeah, so I, I guess I would say that if you have the opportunity to go to Chengdu, definitely spend more than a day, um, or to Sichuan, definitely spend more than a day and go to more than just Sanxingdui. I mean, I think Sanxingdui is a fascinating site. And if you're able to visit in sometime in the near future, while they have this ongoing excavation of the newly discovered pits, that will be a fascinating time to visit there. The museum there is was already very good. And now with this additional ability to see some ongoing excavations, that would be really uh, fabulous. Uh, opportunity. But Sanxingdui is by no means the only worthwhile place to see in, uh, the, in the Sichuan Basin. And in fact, in Chengdu City, I mentioned already the Jinsha Museum, Jinsha. which uh, was built more recently than the original Sanxingdui Museum, and therefore is a little bit more interactive. It's bigger. It has, has a really cool movie associated with it and, <laughs> and so forth. And so like it's rel- definitely worthwhile visiting. And there are other sites around, archaeological sites around Chengdu that are worthwhile visiting. And of course, the cultural experiences in the area. I mean, there's the Panda Sanctuary just outside of Chengdu, which everybody in the world should get a chance to see if they have a chance in their <laughs> life. Food in Sichuan, of course, is delicious, which is the main reason I worked there for so long. <laughs> um, and so I definitely recommend spending a little bit of time in Chengdu to experience both the past and the present of that area. Mm -hmm. If you have a little bit more time in the Sichuan area, 
the places that I would definitely recommend going are Omeishan, which is one of the sacred mountains not too far. And there's a large Buddhist statue in related grottos at a place called Lushan right nearby. That's one set of really fascinating places to visit. And another that mm-hmm. people may not know of as often is uh, the city of Zigong. So I got my start in archaeology in China working on salt and the yeah. archaeology of salt. And uh, I know that in the Tea and Horses Road, which you mentioned before, has connections yeah. to salt on the Tibetan Plateau. The yeah. Sichuan Basin is one of the many fascinating things about it is that it was a an inland sea under, at the base of, base of which salt deposits were laid down when the sea dried up. And so there are rich salt deposits throughout Sichuan, but those in the middle of the basin are deeply buried. Zigong is famous because it became a center of salt production from the mm-hmm. Ming into the Qing periods because of the developing technology of deep well drilling. And so there are these deep, well, there are these, they, they look like oil derricks, but these wooden derricks that were built hundreds of years ago to drill very deep wells to get to the highly saline brine that was Mm. then used to turn into salt. And there's a fascinating museum in Zigong about that. There's also a dinosaur museum there. Uh, So it's another good place for tourists to visit in the Sichuan area. Outside of Sichuan, there's lots of other really great museums. I guess if I had to pick one that I would point people to, it would be to visit Liangzhu, which is a site near Hangzhou in the uh, Yangtze River Delta region and a, a fascinating place for all sorts of yeah, different true. reasons that are not unrelated to Sanjin Gui, but that's a whole long story that we probably don't have time to get into. Fascinating, fascinating. I, I've seen those uh, salt mines, by the way, uh-huh. in the mountains of Yunnan. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and they sort of mold them into these molds and then load them, dry them, load them, they're chunks of salt, yeah. and load onto horseback and um, carry all the way along the T-Horse Road into Tibet. I'm yes. sure different... Sagong is another path that does that. It's another path. It's also a very different technology for making the salt. So it's it's actually really interesting in that respect. Yeah. Wow. And the last recommendation, books. Mm. For those of us who are armchair travelers right now, mm-hmm. anything to read up about Sanxingdui or Chinese history archaeology? Uh, that's a great question. So the two things I would recommend, well, okay, one thing I would recommend if you're really interested in Sanchin Day in Sichuan and you want to, on the academic end of things, would be my own book. <laughs> so I wrote a book <laughs> called Ancient Central China, which actually isn't unrelated to the conversation today because it makes the argument that when we think about the about ancient China, often the center of that is thought about thought to be the north, the north in the Yellow River Valley, but China is actually a modern modern entity, right? And so ancient central China, when we talk about central China, we're talking about central of now's China. And so it's really a book about Sichuan mm. and Hubei and Hunan and Chongqing. But it's, it's very much a book about archaeology and archaeological finds and the interpretation of them. So it's for somebody who would be really interested in diving into that kind of the nitty gritty of those sorts of data. For a book that's more about experience of life in China, in particularly in the Sichuan region in recent decades, I would highly recommend Peter Hessler's River Town yes. um, and, uh, and his subsequent books. I think that, so I lived in the Three Gorges around the same time when he was a Peace Corps volunteer there. Yeah. So the China that he describes in the 1990s, late 1990s, is one that resonates and has knock-on effects to the present day, but it really captures amazingly well, 
I think, the lived experience of people in that region of China at that time. Mm. And uh, so I would definitely recommend that as a book for people to uh, get into some aspect of of, of this. Mm. So, uh, uh, yeah, that's, I guess, where I would start. <laughs> Sounds great. Okay, there's, uh, Rowan, there's lots to talk about. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rowan. It's oh, wonderful uh, to be here, man. Yeah, yeah. It's such, such a such a pleasure to talk about Sanxingdui, and I cannot wait for the pandemic to be over, so we you can get back to the field and we can go visit Sanxingdui. Wild China Travel presents the China Travel Podcast, hosted by me, Kendra Tombolato, and Wild China founder Mei Zhang. In this series, we'll be traveling to a different place in China each week to share our local tips and expert travel advice. To catch our weekly podcast, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.